0: The readings Ezra chapter 1, which is on page 473 in the Church Bibles. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin... And the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his god. Cyrus, king of Persia, had brought had brought by. Mir- Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. And other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver, Brought them all. brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem.
1: Shall we just uh, bow and pray first of all? Oh, Heavenly Father we thank you for your word which is precious and uh, we pray that you'd be with us now as we look into it as we begin uh, to look at this book of Ezra. We pray Lord that you would speak to us. Uh, and that you would help us to learn what you want us to learn. We pray, Lord, that we would be fed and pointed to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, even today. And uh, we ask that you will be glorified as we look at this book together. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, as Rich said, we uh, come to uh, begin a new series today in the book of Ezra. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this. It is an obscure uh, little book. Um, ten chapters. It's possibly not a book that is studied as much as uh, some others are, but I think it is incredibly relevant, uh, to both to the unfolding story of what God is doing in his world, and if we can get a glimpse of that, I hope we'll see how relevant it is to where we are in our modern culture today as well. We've entitled ourselves, as you can see, The Journey Home. This is because... Um, at this point in the Bible, this is the story of how God's people, the Israelite nation, returned home to their capital city, Jerusalem, after being exiled in Babylon for 70 years. The title of the book is the name of the man who I think most Bible commentators think wrote it. If, in fact, if you, if you look at the Bible here at this point, just before Ezra, you've got two books called Chronicles. One Chronicles and two Chronicles. They're history books. And then you've got the book of Ezra and then you've got the book of Nehemiah. All of those books uh, we think were written by this man Ezra. Uh, The books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Jewish Old Testament are actually considered to be one Bible book. And somehow, as those translations have been done into Latin and Greek, uh, they've been separated into two books. And in our Kind of English Bible, we've got two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, but uh, I think Ezra wrote both of them. Uh, they're partly written as uh, narrative history, if, you, if you've had a little look uh, as a sneak preview. Uh, some of it is written from the personal memoirs or diaries of Ezra and later Nehemiah, so there's quite a few places where they say, I did this and did that and went there and did this. And there's lots of lists. Uh, I'm not sure who's going to be reading the Bible next week in our service, but in chapter two, there's a really nice list of long names, so uh, someone can uh, volunteer for that. But there's also a list of uh, people, there's lists list of things that they took back. Um, there's also in there some political government documents and decrees uh, to help us get the overview of the story. If if you were able to look at our website on the the brief introduction there, you'll you'll realise that across the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there are actually three separate journeys home. The first one in Ezra was led by a man called Zerubbabel, who uh, ultimately rebuilt the temple. The second one was led by Ezra himself, and we don't meet him until chapter 7. And then the third return was led by Nehemiah, and that was to rebuild the city walls. And we're going to be looking, as Rich said, at the book of Nehemiah in our midweek groups concurrently with this. One, one interesting thing is that it's, it's a bit odd the way the books in the Old Testament are put together. When we get to the end of Nehemiah, that is actually the end of biblical Old Testament history. And we're not told anything else that happens until the birth of Jesus 400 years later. So although there are other books after that, those books are prophet books, and they kind of feed into some of this narrative history. So when you get to the end of Nehemiah, there's a silence then for three, four hundred years. So when we get to the end of Nehemiah, the scene that these men set is the prelude to the kind of world Jesus was born into. So I hope you'll appreciate that as we go through uh, these two books together. Now, as we introduce uh, this uh, book and we just get into chapter one today, I've got one main idea that I want you to get a hold of today. And um, let's begin with an illustration to uh, introduce it. I don't know if I've mentioned this book to you before. Um, this, this guy um, died a few years ago, James Mitchell. I don't, has anyone ever read this book, The Source? No? My sister-in-law and... Uh, Mother-in-law liked to give me an uh, excellent book to read. This, uh, I would really recommend this book if you, if you like a good uh, historical yarn. Um, this, this book is a fascinating story that revolves around an archaeological, an archaeological site. put my teeth back in, in. In Israel. It's a fictional site. And uh, there was a little hill there. Archaeologists would know it as a tell spelt T-E-L it's like a little mound and as they excavate this site they discover all sorts of different settlements that have been there on the same site since very early mankind all the way through history right up until the present day and because the book's based on a fictional Israeli site um, that takes us through all sorts of periods in history and it traces uh, early mankind, through the Canaanites, uh, the first Jews, King David makes an appearance, uh, and then you have the Greek Empire, the Roman invasions, the first Christians, later on the Crusades, and right up to the modern day. It is it is a, a novel, it's a fictional story, but it's based on real history from those times, and I suppose the the reason the guy's written the book is to give people an insight into the struggles that go on in the Middle East. Because when you, when you think about Jerusalem, uh, there are three different religions that all claim title to the land around Jerusalem. The Jews do, uh, Christians do, and Muslims do from a later period in history. So the conflict that's going on in the Middle East is very uh, complex, isn't it? And this book kind of helps to understand some of that. What intrigues me about this book, and here's my illustration, is the fact that as they dig down into this mound or tell, what they find is layers of settlements. And I think a lot of modern cities are built on hills for this reason, aren't they? Because they've been built on top of other earlier settlements. And this is the fact that each new settlement or civilization is built on the ruins. Of the previous one. You ever think about that in history? This book's a great example of that because sometimes at the end of a chapter, the whole town will be swept away and a new settlement will be rebuilt on the ruins of that previous one. You ever see the uh, the the film uh, The Lion King? And what, what's that song that Elton John does? It? The Circle of Life. You know, you know that song from The Lion King. The circle of life. And this idea of building, ruin, rebuilding, more ruin, rebuilding again. That's how history plays itself out, isn't it? When you look back in history, civilization settlements come and go. Now some people in our modern culture may argue that this process is completely random. But from a biblical perspective... That process is not random at all. God is in control of this historical process. And I think this idea of things being rebuilt on the ruins of previous uh, settlements is very relevant to this book of Ezra. So I want to um, think with you about rebuilding on the ruins. So, let's have a little think about this uh, theme. I want to just say two things about this, uh, first of all, from a biblical point of view. The first is this, that God is a God who loves to build. He loves to initiate things. He's a creative God. The God of the Bible loves to begin things that will grow and develop and multiply. One of the great things in the early chapters of the Bible is that God creates and commands the first humans to multiply and to rule over creation. God is building something. In in actual fact, what God is doing is building a community of people which has purpose, Direction and it's to be lived out with God at the center of it all, and it's good. The Bible says in Genesis that when God sort of stood back and surveyed all that He's made, he's made He said, That is very good. There's life and joy, there's a reason for things, there's purpose, clarity, life. God loves to build community and he loves to build communities that love and worship him and who reflect his goodness and greatness to others. Theologians talk about God being the first cause behind all other causes. You understand that phrase? That behind it when, when people say, Why why has this happened? Why is this how you can go all the way back, and the first cause, right at the beginning, Is the Lord God Himself, the Creator? But here's a second idea for you God is a God who loves to build, but missing the intended cause always brings ruin. If God loves to build and we miss or neglect or simply don't want His purposes for our lives, the result will be that we ruin things, including our own lives. In fact, the result of missing the original cause of anything is always ruinous. Um, if a designer makes a product to be used, uh, Jane at home has some hair straighteners. Some of you ladies have hair straighteners. And uh, long thing things, that, you know, you plug them in, they get warm. I've often, as I'm watching Jane straighten her hair sometimes, I've often wondered, you know, wouldn't it be great to make a toasted cheese sandwich with those hair straighteners? You could really make a nice sandwich with one of those. You cut the bread, cheese, and you could just like... And, uh, oh, that's really nice. But you know what would happen to the hair straighteners if you did that, don't you? They'd be ruined. Why? Because they're designed to straighten hair, not to make toasted cheese sandwiches. In our kitchen, we have a food blender. We don't use it loads, but... um, it's got something quite sharp inside that spins very fast. And uh, it's designed to mix soft food and liquidise things. But what do you think would happen if I put a whole load of stones in there? I recently needed some pea gravel to just fill in some floor beds. And what a thing it would be to put in a couple of stones in there to make pea gravel. What would happen to the blender? Be ruined. Because it isn't designed to make pea gravel. It's designed to do something else. Whenever we misuse things that are designed for a particular purpose, the result is they get broken. God is a God who loves to build, but when we miss his intended purpose for our lives, the result is ruin. Do you know what's worse still? When lots of people in a community come together, and can't agree what the intended purpose is. They all have a different sense of purpose. And that always creates problems. When you look at history, most cultures don't last for more than a few hundred years. And generally, cultures tend to destroy themselves from within, don't they? Sometimes we think, well, it was the invaders that came and conquered. Actually, Often the invaders come and they find that the country they're conquering has become so corrupt and a bit pathetic that they just saunter in and there's no need to fight because the culture has already destroyed itself from the inside out. They've become so decadent and corrupt and insecure that the invader can just walk in and take over. And the existing culture isn't so much ruined by conquest but is internally already ruined before they even have to have a fight, There's a great example of this in the Bible. Um, Jai has been um, doing this series in Daniel. And uh, there's a chapter there when the the great King Belshazzar throws a great massive party for a thousand guests. They're drinking, partying, and yet they don't know that that very night Darius the Mede is going to come. That very night and just walk straight in and conquer the Babylonian empire very relevant to our story in Ezra their civilization was ruined from the inside and another one was built on the ruins of it just think about the Bible as a whole as well there's a, there's a biblical pattern here of God building things being ruined and then God rebuilding God starts by building a community But the first man and woman reject God's idea of community. They were free to choose, but they thought, well, we'd rather have our own purpose. Our purpose is better than God's purpose. We'll go our own way. And it brought ruin. And God excluded them from that first garden of paradise. Because ultimately their choices would ruin it. One of their children killed the other. And this is the story, isn't it, of the whole Bible. The first family ruined by the choices that they made. Eventually the whole of society is ruined. Just listen to these words from Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. That's got to be one of the most saddest verses in the whole Bible, hasn't it? A good God creates a wonderful world. And through the choices we make, We bring ruin to it. God made it all for his own glory. Full of goodness and purpose. And now it is ruined. The other dynamic that we find there in Genesis chapter 6. Is that God decides in judgment. To cut back the ruin. And start again. And you'll know the story. Judgment falls on those ruins. God wipes out the majority of humans in a devastating flood. One man Noah and his wife three sons and their wives only eight people are preserved from that devastation. God cuts back and then he begins to rebuild on the ruins through Noah. And what happens it's not a few nanoseconds pass by and Noah makes poor choices too and begins to ruin everything again eventually you get to Genesis chapter 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel and here's an interesting thing in relation to building that the human race as a whole now believe that they can build a tower that will reach up to God but in fact the human race is already ruined because of the foolish pride in people's hearts and so God cuts things back again By confusing language and dispersing the nations. What happens in chapter 12? God begins to rebuild again on the ruins of that. And he calls one man. Abraham. A pagan man. He calls him out. And this is what God says to him in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. What is God doing? He's cutting back. And then rebuilding on the ruins. And what is he building? I'll make you into a great nation. Time and time again. God builds. Humans ruin. God cuts it back. Rebuilds on the ruins. The whole story of the Bible is one of God building. And humans breaking. If you like graphs. Uh, Jai likes graphs, he's good at maths he, I, I think you could draw a graph of like human ruin God cutting it back beginning to rebuild human ruin God cuts it back in judgment then it, kind of, the ruin, y- y- it would look like a saw a teeth, ruin cut back, rebuild all the time God is rebuilding on the ruins of a previous failure what does God say to Adam? I'll build a people through you Abraham grows into a family the family goes to Egypt and grows into a nation and this new community of over 2 million people emerges from Egypt and eventually comes to the land that God promised them in Canaan and they settle there we haven't got time to look at the whole history but eventually they appoint kings many of them are not good kings their capital city is Jerusalem Jerusalem And the reason for their existence is to be a light to all the other nations to reflect God's goodness and creativity to be a mirror in which everyone else would see God's justice and kindness and love. Would they build their lives on God? Or would they make choices that would bring ruin? Well, you know the story. They don't want to really be God's people And all the way down that history, God lovingly warns them that if they continue in their stubborn ways, that he will cut them back. Just listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. For 23 years the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. You did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, And my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. You see what God's doing? That God is the first cause. Nebuchadnezzar is the second cause. He's an instrument in God's hand. But that sore tooth is happening again. Ruin, God cuts it right back. You can read in 2 Kings chapter 25, around 600 BC, there was a king in Judah called Zedekiah Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem, their beloved capital, the city of God. He lays siege. The people are starving. The king Zedekiah and his two sons escape, but they're caught. The king's two sons are killed in front of him, and then he has his eyes poked out, he's chained, and led off to Babylon in captivity. We never hear of him again. Let me read to you what happened next this is Jerusalem on the 7th day of the 5th month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon Nebuzaradan, I have no idea you say that commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem he set fire to the temple of the Lord the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem every important building he burned down the whole Babylonian army under the command of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem Nabuz-Aradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the population and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. Do you get the significance of what's going on there? The great nation of Israel that God has built is no more. It's finished. It's gone. Ruined. They, as a people are ruined Jerusalem is burnt to the ground the temple is gone the place where God's glory dwelt is gone and the people are carried off to a foreign pagan land it's over what they're experiencing is a cutting back do you get that? God was building. People ruin. And then God cuts back in judgment. God has decided. It's enough. It warned them. Some of you might remember a pop group called Bonham. Remember a pop group called Bonham. 1978, they released a single that was number one in the charts for five whole weeks. You know what it was called? By the Rivers of Babylon. You all know this song. I didn't know this, but it was a cover version of an original song that was written by a Rastafarian band in 1970 called the Melodians. I never knew that. It is one of the few pop songs that is based entirely on words from the Bible. Did you know that? Psalm 137. Shall we turn to it? Psalm 137. We're just piecing together all of this different history. You'll know what the first verse of Psalm 137 says now. Someone's singing it away there. (laughs) These are God's people. And it says, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon... The Euphrates, the Kibar River, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. Why? When we remembered Zion. That's another word for Jerusalem. And their captives said to them, sing us one of the songs that you used to sing when you were home. And in verse 4, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? It's a very poignant song. You get the picture, the ruin that has come. God, the great builder, made them into a great nation so that they would be a light to the whole world, so that they would spread his fame and do good. And they forgot what they were for. And they didn't want to be God's building or God's people or God's light or God's community. And so they were ruined. One commentator sets the historical stage for Ezra very well when he says this. This was a death to make way for a rebirth. God was cutting them back so that he could rebuild on the ruins of their previous failure. Rebuilding on the ruins. It's another layer. And it is the Lord God who's behind that. 1,000 years earlier, Abraham's family emerged from Egypt, as we said, as a nation of over 2 million people. And now, a small remnant of only 50,000 people emerged from Babylon. Not as a nation, not as a political state, but as a little flock. Trusting God again. God builds community we ruin it God strips it bare, cuts it back and then by his grace he rebuilds on the ruins and this is where the little book of Ezra begins and I hope we'll see and in Nehemiah as well that it is the story of rebuilding on the ruins by God's grace let's um, have a little look into chapter 1 Um, my second title here is God is the Rebuilder. We've said it already, haven't we? God is the first cause. This is not a random process, but the Lord God is behind it. We can say that for two reasons, and I want to look at these verses with you to just establish some important truths. First of all, God is the Rebuilder. We know that it was God who did it because it was based on a promise. A promise. So verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1, we finally got there. It's a long introduction, was not it? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. We mustn't pass over that. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill what God had said to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord moves the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation. It's based on a divine promise. What did Jeremiah say that this could be the fulfillment of Jesus? You, you get that? God has said he's going to do something and now he's doing it. What What had God said in the past? Um, It'd be good to just turn, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Let me give you a page number here. 789, page 789. If you've got a church Bible, Jeremiah 29. This is uh, the text of a letter that Jeremiah sent to the uh, survivors. And uh, it's a a great chapter to read, but I just want to break in at verse 10. Uh, This is what God had said to his people, to these poor exiles who were in ruin. This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. And fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Oh, aren't they the most beautiful words? We well, we could just spend the rest of our time talking about that, couldn't we? What an awful thing it must have been for these people to lift the Being carried off. The horror of invasion. The loss of property. The loss of hope and security. The separation from family and friends. These people are ruined. They're experiencing God's anger in a way. And yet right in the middle of all that horror, God makes a promise that after 70 years he would bring them back and rebuild on the ruins. And what loving language God uses. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The ruin is very bad, but it is not so bad that God is unable to rebuild. He is not only the God who loves to build, he's also the God who loves to restore what's broken. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God amazing? Sometimes we forget this uh, side of uh, God's character. That God is a God who loves to repair, rebuild, to heal. And here is the promise that he makes. The reference to prayer and seeking God is very interesting as well. Just as a little aside, for those of you who like some homework. God promises something and he tells his people to look for him, to seek him, to search for him, to pray to him, to long for him that's how it always works God promises something and this amazing kindness causes faith to rise in the hearts of God's people who are broken and they cry out to God Lord you've promised please do for us what you've promised they run to God not on the basis of them being repaired but on the basis of the promise God's made to them it's a stimulus to prayer read Daniel chapter 9 sometime this week Daniel knew Jeremiah and when he read this letter it caused him to go to God and pray Lord I've read in Jeremiah what you promised to do come and do it that's amazing uh, connection the idea of prayer secondly not only is it based on his promise but it's based on God's power This is all happening because God is the first cause, the sovereign Lord over history. And if you look at verse 1 again, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the promise of God, the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. This is a picture of Cyrus. Uh, For God to accomplish his plans for his people, he stirs the heart of a pagan king. 539 BC, Cyrus is 60 years old. He's fought his way to being the king of Persia. And then in October 539 BC, he marches into Babylon. And this new Persian empire, if you've seen the little timeline on the website, is a global superpower that will ultimately stretch from Egypt... Well, from your point of view, if you look at the map, from Egypt in the west to India in the east, Cyrus is effectively the king of the whole world. And the Lord moves his heart to issue a decree. God's, in some ways, pathetic little remnant flock How afraid and fragile they must feel. And the Lord God can stay the heart of a pagan king to fulfill his plans for his fledgling, broken people. Jerusalem lies in ruins. God's people have been in exile for 70 years. And unexpectedly, King Cyrus now sends them home to rebuild Jerusalem and pays for it. How about that? does that strike you as encouraging that the Lord God is the one who is in control the king of Persia, Cyrus the king of the world thinks that he's in control but it is the Lord God who is really behind these events, he stirs the heart of the king the great point here is that Even human beings who are not even believers in God uh, can be used by him to fulfill his purposes. This king is not a believer in God, we know that. He's a politician, he's a shrewd politician as well. Unlike the Babylonians, he realizes that the best way to secure his empire is to allow the different parts of it to have freedom. In 1879, a cylinder was discovered in Babylon which was inscribed attributes tributes to this man, Cyrus. You can go and see it in the British Museum. It doesn't mention Jerusalem, but it reveals something of the policy that Cyrus had towards the subjects in his empire. Um, and I've got a translation here to read to you. This is what Cyrus says on this Cyrus cylinder. It looks like a call on the cob to me. So it's got writing all the way around it. But it says this, I returned to these sacred cities the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, may they say this, Cyrus the king who worships you and Cambyses his son. What he was doing was sending them home for them to pray to their gods that his God would bless him. This is a pagan man. He doesn't have a godly motive in doing this. But the Lord stirs his heart and somehow his policy of religious tolerance means that he issues this decree and sends God's people home exactly like God had promised Jeremiah that he would do. It is incredible. One minister writing about this Derek Thomas said Cyrus knows that the way to maintain an empire is to at least keep their religious and social structures intact to have them working for you and not against you so he allows them to go back the Jews go back to Jerusalem and others back to their places and they can take their idols and symbols of their deities with them and so he issues this decree another man Stephen Cole says this on a human level you have a polytheistic king following his program of religious tolerance superstitiously asking the subject people to pray to their gods for his well-being he even provided for funds to be raised to support the restoration and he he donated the temple objects that Nebuchadnezzar had taken years before how amazing is that? so in the midst of ruin and misery and loss of hope their God is still on the throne And from the ruins of their past failure, he uses a pagan king to send them home to rebuild on the ruins and start again. The idea is that this political and historical reality is being played out. But the first cause is not man, but God, the great builder and rebuilder so look at the, um, the decree, verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. He's not saying that because he believes in God. He's using their religious language. But this decree, they, they must have been sitting there rubbing their eyes, must not they? Is this a dream? Is this some kind of April Fool's joke? We never expected this. How great their God is. The fact that God is behind all this is confirmed in verse 5. Because not only did God stir the heart of a pagan king, but he stirred the hearts of his own people too. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God's working in their hearts. He's working in Cyrus' heart to accomplish his purposes. And so begins the journey home. The last four words of chapter one sum up our whole series from Babylon to Jerusalem. The journey home. Pots and pans and a little band of folks whose hearts got us stirred are going home. God is behind all of this journey home. Let me um, just close by drawing out some spiritual parallels for us. What does all this point to? All of this is true and verifiable history. This pulpit's going to fall over. But it's very instructive for us to see what it points to. God is the great builder. We always ruin things. Even this rebuilding actually in the end didn't work out. But what it did do was to continue to prepare the way for a much more comprehensive and permanent and successful rebuilding. All of this history is teaching us that God is in control And that human nature is prone to ruin. But the ultimate rebuilding on the ruins is the fact that God sends not a Zerubbabel or an Ezra or an Nehemiah, but He sends His own Son into the ruin. But it gets better really I think at this point what does all this point to it points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who faced ruin so that we wouldn't have to God's son innocent as he was died in disgrace ruined for him He faced the final enemy, death itself. You think about this. If the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the foundations ripped up and the columns smashed, how much more was Jesus obliterated in shame like a criminal? He took all of our ruin onto his shoulders. All the ruin that we create and contribute to All of our missing the real cause and purpose of our lives. All of our persistence in pushing God out of our lives. All of it brings ruin. And Jesus faced the ruin for us. He cried out on the cross, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced ruin so that we wouldn't have to. But that's not the end of the story, is it? He rose from a death, he conquered death, and as he stands on the ruins, he now begins to rebuild a new community of people who believe in him. The whole story of the Bible is one great message that even though we're ruined, Christ can rebuild us and bring us into a new community of people who love and worship and trust him. That process begins right now and will culminate one day in God making all things new. He does what we can't. He achieves what we never will. And the cross of Jesus is the beginning of the journey home how can I apply this to our hearts then as we close I want you to think about those exiles we'll think about this more next week Richard uh, will preach next week from chapter 2 I wonder whether there's something in your life that keeps you captive like those Jews were held captive in exile three things. The first step is to own the ruin. One of the problems with our modern world is that it always says that we're basically good and it's the outside, it's everyone else that ruins us. It's my wife, my husband, my kids, my parents, it's my job, it's my neighbours, it's the government, it's the environment. It's always something else. It's not me. I'm good really. It's everyone else's fault. The first step is to own the ruin. I have my share in this ruin. I haven't lived my life with God at the centre. The second step is recognising that God is the first cause of all things. God is the great initiator. Can I tell you something from the Bible? God is not waiting for you to do something. That is a burden that you cannot carry. God is way ahead of you. He's the great initiator. He has already done it all. And he calls you to trust him. He isn't waiting for you to do something so that he can then do something. God, you know in those pantois, he's behind you. God isn't behind you. Waiting for you, following you. God is way in front of you. He is ahead of you. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He thought of you way before you ever thought of him. He isn't waiting for you to do something. He calls you to trust him. He is the first cause. Not us. That's faith. The third step. Is one of obedience. Just imagine you were in exile in Babylon, and the word of the prophet comes, and then Cyrus issues his decree, and you think, and I think and cast stay here. The third step is to get up and leave, isn't it? Obedience. We'll think about this more next week. What would they go back to? Who knows? Did they have any support or income? They had nothing. Absolutely nothing. All they had was the promise and the power of God. Was it going to be easy? No. We need to get up and go, don't we? We need to be ready to have the inconvenience of traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem, we need to change direction. We need to stop putting it off and saying we'll do it next week or next month or next year, and move now. We need to be ready to leave comfort behind and face the ruins and rebuild with God's help. So I, I want to ask you this morning: Did these words reflect your life movement from something to something? From the old to the new. From the ruin to the rebuilding. From trusting ourselves to trusting God. And I think this is a challenge for us as a church as well. Why are we here? What are we here for? What is our purpose? The first cause is God. He is the builder of Christian communities. And the question there is, will we follow him? Will we pray that he would be rebuilding something glorious on top of our ruins? Will we join with one another and pray, Oh God, come and build something special here in Rotherham. And will we, as a church family, as a whole, be prepared for the inconvenience of following him and serving him together? Rebuilding on the ruins. Oh man.